If you're like me, sometimes being in the dark, not being able to see anything, helps you concentrate on listening on what's being said. So uh, listen carefully as we read Psalm 95 tonight. This is the psalm that is next in line for us to cover. It goes like this. O come, let us sing unto the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come before His presence with thanksgiving and make a joyful noise unto Him with psalms. For the Lord is a great God and a great king above all gods. In his hand are the deep places of the earth. The strength of the hills is his also. The sea is his, and he made it, and his hands form the dry land. O come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord our Maker. For he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture, and the sheep of his hand. Today, if ye will hear his voice, Harden not your heart, as in the provocation, as in the day of temptation in the wilderness. Thank you, brother. When your fathers tempted me, proved me, and saw my work, forty years long was I grieved with this generation, and said, It is a people that do err in their heart, and they have not known my ways, unto whom I swear in my wrath, that they should not enter into rest. Uh, There is no inscription of this psalm. Uh, We have some help, however, from the book of Hebrews. In Hebrews 3 and 4, there are three times that this psalm is referenced, especially the statement, Today, if you will hear his voice. And each time, it's uh, one time it says, It says. Uh, Another time it says, The Holy Spirit saith. Third time it says, David saith, or it says, in David it says. So, three different ways that this is spoken of. It is the Holy Spirit speaking, it's Scripture speaking, and then it is found in David. Now, that may mean that David said it, David wrote it, or it may mean that uh, simply the Psalms being generally uh, considered to be a work of David, that that is simply where it's found. The important point for our study tonight is to just note that the psalm was written a long time after the incidents that it's referring to. Okay, got that? That the psalm, if the earliest it could have been written is in David's day. And that would have been at least 400 years after the incident that's referred to here in this psalm. So that's the only important thing. As long as we realize that there's been a long time span between the time of the incident this psalm is talking about and the actual writing of the psalm. That will be important. Outside of that, it's not all that important when when it's written. Um, we have been looking on Sunday morning at hearing. Faith comes by hearing. Hearing by the Word of God. Uh, We saw that in the Greek Septuagint versions, uh, uh, Isaiah 53 verse 1 says, Lord, who hath believed the hearing of us, the report, what we've been preaching. We have been talking about the importance of actually hearing from God, hearing His message, this thing we call the gospel. This psalm deals with that 
same topic. That's why it's very timely since we've been studying that on Sunday morning to now see that this psalm talks about the same thing. And it almost divides evenly in two. The first uh, seven verses speak of what is to be our response, what is the proper response, what we ought to do if we've heard this message. And the last half from uh, verse 7 on to the end of the psalm, it's talking about what we ought not to do, what the wrong response is to hearing the voice of God. So let's, let's look at them carefully. I would say, look up on the wall and follow along with me, but you're just going to have to listen, right? The first part of the psalm talks about how we are to worship God, how we are to approach Him. We are told that we are to make a joyful noise, that is, that our worship of God ought to be with joy, exuberance. We're to come before Him with thanksgiving. We're to make a joyful noise unto Him with psalms. In other words, uh, I'm thinking of Nehemiah. Some of you may remember in the first part of Nehemiah that the king there in Persia notices that Nehemiah is downcast, that he's sad, he's depressed. And when the king makes mention of this to Nehemiah, Nehemiah immediately begins to tremble in fear. Because in those eastern monarchies, if you're the servant of the king, you're supposed to be happy. You're supposed to have a smile on your face. And if you didn't, you came before the king with a sad countenance, you got your head lopped off. And so Nehemiah is immediately frightened when the king of Persia points out the fact that he's not happy. I mean, you're in the presence of the king. You're supposed to be happy. But how much more so those of us who have come into the presence of our God, that we're to come with a heart of joy. In other words, this message that we have heard, the proper response to it, is to respond with joyfulness, with exuberance, singing, praise. And notice the the emphasis on loud two times here. Let us make a joyful noise. Let us make a joyful noise in two different verses. The idea is, is that our praise of God ought to be proportional to the God that we praise. If He's a little God, just praise Him a little bit. But if He's a great big God, then praise Him a lot. In other words, you can't go overboard. You can't do too much. Okay? So that's the, that's the sense of it. Well, why then should we praise God? And he goes on in the Psalms to give you several reasons. Number one, because he's a great God. He's a God who is a king above all gods. God's there, little g. It's the Hebrew word Elohim, which sometimes refers to the angels. In other words, all other beings, all of those that are called gods, uh, that perhaps are not are not gods, that he is the king of all the gods. He is over all the others. There is none superior to him. And notice that in his hand are the deep places of the earth and the strength of the hills is his. Now that's interesting. It doesn't matter how deep you go in the ocean. You can't get away from him that way. It doesn't matter how high you go on top of the mountain, you can't get away from him there. Whether you go to the deeps or whether you go to the heights, he's still God. He's not trying to be God. He's not hoping you'll let him be God. He's God. Let that sink in. He is a God who has certain qualities of omnipotence, of omniscience. Uh, I heard an old uh, uh, preacher back in West Virginia, one of these old country boys, said one of the most astounding things I think I've ever heard. He said, has it ever occurred to you that nothing ever occurred to God? 
<laughs> Think about it. <laughs> He's not learning anything. He's not getting any new information. He already knows the end from the beginning. He needs no instruction. He doesn't need our help. That's what Paul preached on Mars Hill in Acts 17. Here are these Athenians with all their gods around the city. Uh, he says he's not worshipped as though he needeth anything. We've got to be careful, uh, for instance, in our teaching on Christian giving, that we don't give the impression that somehow God is needy uh, you know, he just can't do it unless we help him out. He needs that 20 in our pocket, you know, or it's not going to get done. Well, there is a sense in which God employs us, uses us, blesses us, enables us to contribute to the furtherance of the gospel. But let us never blaspheme the name of God by thinking somehow that he needs us, that he can't get along just fine without us. He was doing real good before we ever came along. You know, we have the theory, have you heard the, that, well, God was lonely. And so He created man so He'd have somebody to fellowship with. No, He's doing fine. He had three persons in the Trinity with whom to fellowship. God was always perfect and complete. He never was lacking. So there's no sense in which God needs us. But oh my, and Paul goes on to point out how much you need Him in whose hands your breath is, said Daniel to Belshazzar. And Paul will preach on Mars Hill that this God who doesn't need you is the God in whom you live and move and have your being. You desperately need Him. But He has no sense dependent on you. So this is a great God. I mean, I could go on and on, and I know you've heard this from me a, a dozen times, I hope, but I hope it sticks with you that the God that we worship is incalculably great, unthinkably glorious. You cannot possibly wrap your mind around the greatness of our God. And therefore, our worship of God ought to be in accordance with His greatness. And the text goes on to say, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the God who is our Maker. Notice there's a posture of worship here. Uh, we are to bow down. We are to kneel. Here is a, a, a balance that we must keep in our worship of God. And on the one, on the one hand, it's to be exuberant. It's to be joyful. It's to be from the heart. And yet on the other hand, it's to be tempered with a sense of the awe of God. That we don't become flippant with God irreverent before God. Do you follow what I'm saying? On the one hand, it's a joy that is to be expressed in a worship to God. On the other hand, it is also to be coupled with what we would call the fear of God. The respect, the awe that we give Him. Uh, there's a sense in which we fear God, not in the sense that we're scared of Him, I, I remember growing up, I, I don't ever remember being scared of my father. I didn't fear him in that sense. But I tell you what, I feared to disobey him because I knew what was coming. There's a sense in which I did fear him, in the sense that I respected him. My, my relationship to him wasn't buddy-buddy. Uh, I, he wasn't my friend. He was my father. There's a difference. I didn't. I don't mean that he wasn't a friend, 
But that wasn't the role that he fulfilled in my life. And in the same sense, God is not our buddy. I heard a guy one time say that, well, I'm so familiar with God, I could walk into his office, sit down, and put my feet up on his desk. But notice the stance here. Let's kneel. Let's bow. Our dear brother Jerry Bridges, in one of the titles of his books, is bringing together those two two ideas I just expressed. The title of that book is The Joy of Fearing God. Sounds like an oxymoron, doesn't it? How can you fear God and yet be joyful? But that's exactly the point that the psalmist here is expressing. That's how we come before this God. That's the proper response to our hearing of Him, of what He has done for us in the Gospel. But let me quickly go on to the second half of this psalm, because this is the part that is perhaps the most important point for us because this is the one that is quoted there in Hebrews 3 and 4 over and over and over again. I, I'm leaving out something very important. right at the and, and it's hard to tell if this verse actually goes with the front half of this psalm or the back, of, back half of this psalm. It says, We are His people, the people of His pasture, and the sheep of His hand. God's people are likened to a flock of sheep, he is likened to their shepherd. Ever heard that before? Psalm 23, the Lord, Jehovah, Yahweh is my shepherd. Okay, so that relationship. You see that relationship mentioned many, many times in the Old Testament. Here you see it. We're his people, he's the shepherd. Let that thought hang in there as you go into this second part, the part that Hebrews 3 and 4 quoted over and over and over again, today, if ye will hear His voice, harden not your heart. Sunday, Lord willing, if I get back, my intent is to preach on Luke chapter 8. Take heed how ye hear. Here is an Old Testament version of the same thing. If you have heard His voice today, harden not your heart. He goes on to give an example of a generation that did harden their heart. He goes on to talk about like those in the day of the provocation, in the days of the temptation in the wilderness. There was a place in Exodus 17 when the Israelites are coming out of Egypt. They've just crossed the, the Red Sea. They are journeying up towards the Sinai, and they don't have anything to drink. Now, that's not good. I mean, come on. I, I On one hand, I sympathize. I get pretty grouchy when I don't have anything to eat or drink. My family is pretty much trained that when I'm in a bad mood, they start throwing food my way. Uh, that does, I have one of those, I have a mood swing about three times a day at every meal, okay? I get happy. Happy hour is here when the food is on the table. And if there's anything worse than not having anything to eat, and probably a hundred times worse is not having anything to drink. Uh, we read the stories of people. I, I remember reading a novel. I can't think of the name of this thing now, but it was one of the most amazing uh, stories I've ever heard about some Nantucket whalers that uh, got down in, they went around 
the Cape of South America and wound up out in the Pacific Ocean. And they were out uh, trying to kill a sperm bull sperm whale, which not only did they not kill the bull sperm whale, but that whale rammed their ship and sunk it, leaving these whalers out in these little little rowboats uh, that they had been out hunting the whale in. And so here they are stuck out in the middle of the ocean. And they they thought about heading towards uh, Tahiti, to the, the oceans in French Polynesia, but they had heard stories that there were cannibals over there, so they were afraid to go that way. So instead, they turned back towards South America. Long story short, most of them never made it. But can you imagine being adrift in the ocean like that, with water all around you, but you can't drink it? And the incredible thirst that they described. And so, I can't think of anything worse, a worse trial than to be thirsty. And that's what befell the Israelites. And they began to murmur. And they began to complain. In fact, Moses cries out to God, telling him, they're, they're ready to kill me. Not only are they ready to kill me, but they're saying, God just brought us out here in the wilderness to kill us. Why didn't we, why didn't we stay in Egypt? And you think about it, the sheep are rebelling against the shepherd. The sheep are ready to murder the shepherd. <laughs> In other words, they, the sheep are demanding that God give them water to drink. And God, you remember, gives Moses uh, the directions of taking the rod and striking the rock, and sure enough, water is, is given to the people. But that place, there were two words, two names. This is for extra credit. Anybody remember the two names that were applied to those places? Meribah is one of them. Massa is the other. Massa means striving, or, or uh, temptation actually, and Meribah, fighting or striving. Those are the two locations, that's the names that stuck to those places. And those are the two Hebrew words here in this psalm. In other words, it's referring to that incident. That the people, as it were, revolted against the leadership of their shepherd. And so the idea is, is if you've heard God's voice today, don't harden your heart like they hardened theirs. And of course, you go back to Hebrews chapter 3 and 4 and follow the argument that is being used there. And it's the idea that today doesn't just mean their day. They had a day in which they rebelled against the voice of God. But the writer of Hebrews is pointing out that whoever wrote this psalm, let's say David, that there must have been a today for Israel in his day. Because here, 400 years later, he's pinning this psalm, and he's saying to his generation, don't you rebel against God's voice like they rebel. Do you see the point? In other words, there was a today for them, and they never made it into Canaan. They never made it into the land of rest. They fell short. That generation failed the test. Now David, 400 years later, is saying to his generation, don't you do the same thing they did. Now, a couple of things you can draw from that. Number one is that the rest, the rest that you're failing to enter into is more than just a land. 
It's more than a day and the Sabbath rest. It's more than a land. Because if land is what it is, it seemed to be that for that first group. They fell short of the land. But David's speaking to a people that's already in the land. And yet he's still telling them, warning them, don't you fail to enter into rest. Like those folks did. So rest must be more than a day. Rest must be more than a place. You get the sense of that? Secondly, the idea of the time, today. There was a today for those people in the wilderness who perished in the wilderness. There is a today in David's day for his generation. And then the writer of Hebrews is turning around and saying to you and me, there's a today for you. Now notice that the today starts when you hear his voice. When the message comes. Till then, it's not today. There's not even any opportunity. We've been seeing that, haven't we, in our study on Sunday morning, that until someone comes under the sound of the gospel, there's no possibility of them entering into rest. There's no, inter- there's no possibility of saving faith if they've never heard. They can't call if they don't believe. They can't believe if they haven't heard. They can't hear if a preacher isn't sent. You know the chain. Okay? So you're today, the today of the door being opened for you and me begins when we hear the gospel. Make sense? You can't, you can't enter into this rest till you hear. So that starts the clock ticking. But how long does that today last? That's a good question. We have a saying, every dog has his day. Well, every sinner has his day. Well, not every sinner, not every sinner hears, but of those who hear, they are given a span, a time frame in which to repent and to respond to this message. I'm thinking of Jesus sending out His twelve apostles in Matthew chapter 10. He sent them into every village, every little nook and cranny, and every little hamlet of Israel. And you remember what He told them? If they'll receive you, stay there, deliver your message. If they won't receive you, Wipe the dust of your feet off against them and tell them it will be more tolerable in the day of judgment for Sodom and Gomorrah than it will be for them. Their day, you see, is passing. They were, and, and note, I could back up to Israel. Did Israel have a day? The Israel in the wilderness? Did they have a time? Could they just go into Canaan anytime they wanted to? They came to Kadesh Barnea and refused to enter and God more or less said, that's it, boys. That's it. Your day is over. The day of opportunity, of possibility is ended. The next morning they got up saying, well, if we're going to die, let's just die going in. They got whipped, run down the mountain. Their day of entering into Canaan, the door was closed and closed forever. You see the same thing going on in Jesus' ministry in the land of Israel. In fact, to Jerusalem in Luke's version... O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, thou that killest the prophets. You know the the verse. He said, If thou hast known at least in this thy day the things that belong to thy peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. In other words, this is your day. Here's your day of opportunity, and you're blowing it. That's what he's saying. Well, is there a day for you and me? Can a sinner get saved any time he wants to? Paul says in Galatians, God who 
separated me, called me by His grace, separated me from my mother's womb when it, when it pleased Him. He, I'm, I'm not quoting it right. And I can't work your newfangled thing here anyway, Darren. But uh, you know the part. You know the verse I'm trying to quote. Somebody help me here. When it pleased God, who separated me from my mother's womb and called me by His grace, you say, when do I get saved? You get saved when it pleases God. And once the Holy Spirit as he said in the days of Noah, doesn't always contend with man. Once that day is past, then all opportunity, all hope is forever gone. And so the psalmist is pleading with a generation who have heard the voice of God not to make the mistake Israel did. Let me point out, 40 years long was I grieved with this generation. I said, it's a people that do err in their heart. They have not known my ways, unto whom I swore in my wrath that they should not enter into my rest. To quote the New Testament version in Hebrews 4, what does the writer say? There remaineth therefore a rest, a sabbatismos, a Sabbath rest for the people of God. Let us labor to enter into that rest. The rest of faith in Jesus Christ. I, in my view, the Sabbath rest, the Sabbath year rest, the land, the rest where God gives them rest from their enemies is all typical of a rest that you and I have found in Jesus Christ. He said, come unto me all you that are weary and heavy laden. I'll give you rest. Rest to your soul. And so there is this day of opportunity that is open to those who have heard His voice. Now remember, not everybody's heard. But to those who have heard His voice, don't harden your heart. Enter into rest. Alright, well I'm going to stop there. Any comments out there? Uh, everybody's still awake, okay? <laughs> as far as if you hear his voice and not harden your heart, does that imply that someone who hears the voice of the Spirit can harden himself or reject that? In fact, I've got it here in my notes, if I can see them, that... Uh, we have the capacity to harden our heart, but we don't have the capacity to soften our heart. We are able to refuse. We are able to resist. What we can't do is undo the hardness that God must do. It's God who has to take the hard heart of, of stone and replace it with the heart of flesh. That's what He promises to do under the new covenant. So in a sense, I can harden myself. I can resist. And, and notice, again, we, we know in the sovereign purposes of God that God has His people, that He's going to call out of darkness and so forth. But the responsibility that we have uh, is not to His eternal purposes. We don't know those. Our responsibility, if we hear the voice, we're to respond. I, I, something I didn't tie together is that middle swing verse that we're the sheep 
He's our shepherd. We're the sheep of His pasture. Remember? And that's the part that sums up what has preceded. There's the sheep responding as they ought to respond. And now here's the, here they are responding as they should not respond. But think about that in relationship to John 10 when Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. Think about this, the idea of the voice. And that's what the psalmist is saying here. Today, if you will hear his voice. You say, what's the difference between a, a voice and a sound? A voice has a person on the other end of it. There's a person who's speaking to me. And in that John 10 passage, constantly the shepherd is saying, My sheep, hear my voice. He says early that the voice of a stranger, they don't recognize it, they don't know, they won't follow that voice, but they know my voice. The porter opens unto me. I think he's talking about John the Baptist in that context, that he knows my voice and he lets me in. Everybody else tries to get to the sheep, has to come over the wall. They have to come in like a thief and a robber. But the porter recognizes my voice and lets me in. I think he's referring to the ministry of John the Baptist who's pointing out the shepherd to the sheep and introducing the shepherd to the sheep. But then how do you... What's our responsibility? My sheep, they hear my voice and they follow me. And we've just seen a case here in Israel where they're fighting with the shepherd. They want to kill the shepherd. So that's our duty. That's our responsibility. There is a mystical, and I don't know what other word to use, connection between a shepherd and sheep. I uh, raised sheep when I was on the farm in Texas as a boy, and then the most remarkable things I ever saw were out in Wyoming, the ten years we spent out there around some of the great, big, huge sheep operations. I mean, I had, I think, the grand total of 60 sheep uh, in my flock back there when I was a kid. Uh, there were sheep operations there in Wyoming had 10,000 sheep, 10,000 head of sheep. I have seen the sheep shearing camps out on the prairie where they will bring maybe six or seven different flocks of over a thousand sheep apiece into these camps where they shear them. They set up a just a string of semi-trailers just out in the middle of nowhere. And they run sheep in one end of the trailer and out the other. They go in with sheep with wool on, they come out with wool off. They're in there all day long shearing sheep, thousands of sheep. And then the shepherd of his flock will get up on his horse and strike out across the prairie and go to yelling. I have no idea. These guys are from the Bass region of Spain. I have no idea what they're saying. But almost like magic, their flock will unweave itself from that huge mass of thousands of sheep and strike out across the prairie after that shepherd. It's one of the most amazing things you'll ever see. They know His voice. They will not follow the voice of a stranger. That's the sign of God's elect. That's the sign of His people. They hear, they heed, and they respond to the voice of their shepherd.